This is Teach for All Talks, a conversation with global education thought leaders. Today's episode features Wendy Kopp in conversation with Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia and Chair of the Global Partnership for Education. I'm really excited about this Teach for All talk. Thank you so much, Julia, for being here and and everyone for, for joining us. Um, we are very excited, um, and this is a really good turnout for us um, online as well as, as in person about having Julia Gillard here with us this morning. Um, as you all know, she's the former Prime Minister of Australia who is a great friend to Teach for Australia and now wears many different and influential hats in the global effort to ensure quality education for all. She's the chair of the Global Partnership for Education, uh, which is one of the main forces in this. They have invested almost $4.5 billion in education in developing countries and also have, in the process, inspired and leveraged a lot more than that from the, the countries themselves in national spending. She's also on the board of the Education Financing Commission, which is um, making recommendations about the investments that we need to make if we're going to meet the sustainable development goal around equitable and inclusive quality learning for all. Um, and she's many other things, including a distinguished senior fellow at the Center uh, for Universal Education with Brookings in DC, a patron of CAMFED, et cetera. So especially given how incredibly busy you are, we are just very grateful for you um, making the time to be here with us today. So I'm gonna get us started with just a few questions, um, but I really wanna invite those of you here in the audience and online as well to send your own questions in. You can email them to sarah.miller at teachforall.org or ask your questions on Twitter with hashtag teachforall. Um, so just to dive in. Um, so you could be focusing your energy on any number of things. Um, why the focus on global education? That's a good question. Uh, thank you for that. And it's really great to be able to be here and to join everyone. Uh, for me, when I left Australian politics, I needed to, um, well, I needed a little bit of time just to regroup. But having regrouped, or in the process of regrouping, I actually reflected on what were the kind of continuing themes of uh, my life and the themes and things that had best motivated me when I was in politics. And when I looked back on all of that, it was really clear that the continuing thread was an interest in education. Uh, I first got involved in anything that looked like political activity when I was a university student uh, and there was uh, some major cutbacks to university education in Australia and I got involved in a protest campaign about that. That took me into student unionism and it took me into uh, a, a world of believing that if you were active and you were focused on change you could make a difference and it was really that that then inspired me to uh, seek 
uh, elected office and in elected office I did serve as Minister for Education before I was Prime Minister. Uh, so it made a lot of sense for me exiting Australian politics to say, well, where can I continue to pursue that passion for education and equity? And fortunately, uh, the Global Partnership for Education was looking for a new chairperson at precisely the same time, so it was just a perfect match. It's interesting because I think historically the the focus around education has been very local and in some and national, but but less so globally. I mean, when you think about the issues that have gained so much attention, it feels like it's been in in pretty recent years that there's been such attention on on education globally. I wonder if you find that to be true. It feels like your engagement in this is part of sort of growing momentum around focusing on education as a global issue. I definitely think uh, the momentum is growing around global education. Uh, if we go back to the you know year 2000 and the adoption of the Millennium Development Goals and universal access to primary school education, I mean, real efforts were made to achieve that Millennium Development Goal, but I think a few things uh, happened along that journey. Uh, one, the health sector really got organised and organised around uh, some vertical funds, uh, obviously the big campaigns to combat AIDS, uh, the creation of the Vaccine Alliance, uh, led to a lot of energy, including philanthropic energy through Bill Gates, around health and the Global Fund uh, and the Global Vaccine Alliance have benefited from all of that momentum and energy. Uh, meanwhile, uh, back with education, the Millennium Development Goal did lead to the creation of the UN Fast Track Initiative and did lead ultimately to the creation of GPE. But I think that there were some increasing doubts about the access measure, it just being access to primary school. And there was lots of anecdotal evidence that yes, kids were going and sitting in something called a school, but if they're in a classroom of 120 uh, with an untrained teacher at the front with no learning materials, then really no one's learning. Uh, and so I think it's really taken uh, some time for the global community to say we've got to go about this better and to focus on learning. So that's created some new energy. Uh, and then, you know, born of tragedy, unfortunately, but the shooting of Malala, the kidnapping of the Nigerian schoolgirls, I think, has galvanised uh, global attention on how important and powerful girls' education is and what a moral responsibility we've got when girls show so much courage to try and take themselves to school uh, to make sure as a global community that there's actually a school there of quality for them to go to. So I feel like a lot's coming together now, the sort of intellectual case for change through the Education Commission, uh, the uh, citizens' mobilisation through Global Citizen and its focus on education, um, a strengthening at the Global Partnership for Education, uh, a greater focus on children in crisis and emergency and the creation of Education Cannot Wait. And then, of course, everything that you're doing here, uh, which is so tremendous across so many countries, to uh, bolster to teach equality and to support local leadership. Um, one of the things that we've come to see in our work across such diverse contexts is that as different and diverse as, as all these contexts are, there really are such similarities in the challenges that 
local communities and countries face in ensuring quality learning for all. And I'm curious, one, if that rings true, because you have an even more global perspective, and two, what you view as the very biggest challenges in actually achieving this hugely ambitious goal of truly you know, quality learning for all by 2030. Uh, that absolutely rings true and it rings true uh, in an intellectual sense when you look at the problem but it also rings true for me in a very practical sense which is um, at the Global Partnership for Education we've got a constituency based board, we've got 65 developing country partners, they have their voice at the board through constituency representatives and we have a system where those constituencies come together so they can inform their board member about what they think of the board agenda. So it's a, you know, governance structure. But what actually happens when we bring those developing country partners together is yes, they do talk through the board agenda and acquit all of the governance things that they need to do, but they're really energised to spend the time sharing about what is happening in their countries both what's working and being frank with each other about what the gaps are and what's not working. So I think, you know, at that really practical level, you're seeing ministers for education saying, we've all got a lot of common problems and if we collaborated more and shared more, then it wouldn't be each of us facing these problems alone. Um, out of all of those problems, uh, I think this critical issue that you work on uh, of teacher workforce is at the centre of it. Um, and the numbers are kind of frightening uh, about how much growth we need to see in the numbers of people uh, educating children as well as how much improvement we need to see in quality if we're going to get anywhere near achieving the SDG. And... So, turning to solutions, I, I know GPE has just, I believe, approved a new strategic plan, and I'm curious what the big, you know, kind of commitments represented in that plan are. Like, when you think about what are the biggest things we need to do to move in the right direction? Yeah, GPE's model, and it, uh, you know, pops very strongly out of the strategic plan, uh, is our theory of change is that you can improve learning and equity by strengthening education systems. And so whilst much of the uh, global efforts uh, are on uh, project modalities, so many of the bilateral donors, for example, USAID, uh, would engage on a project modality. Uh, our modality is to say the whole system has to be strengthened. If we are going to get uh, universality, you know, every child in school, and if we are going to get quality for every child's education. And sometimes when I talk about this, particularly at public events, I can see people's eyes flicker a little bit at the uh, planning school systems and you can half hear them thinking to themselves, I bet that is, is, you know, is as interesting as watching grass grow, planning a school system. Uh, but, you know, you, I think, understand and in the education community we understand that if there isn't uh, proper planning, then there will be uh, a lot of problems, a lot of wastage and you need uh, inclusively planned education systems if we're going to make sure that that very last child is learning. So that's GPE's um, theory of change. And so unsurprisingly, our big strategic objectives under this uh, plan are to focus on learning, to focus on equity and to focus on strengthening school systems. And... Um 
what role do you see civil society organizations playing within that? I mean, are there certain gaps that you feel that that civil society can can play as part of that in, well, in filling? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, civil society is part of the partnership uh, of GPE, and we do uh, make grants to try and strengthen uh, civil society in, in our developing country partners so that they can be at that planning table when uh, the education system is being thought about and its you know, next uh, four years are being designed. Uh, so we think that strengthening of civil society is very important. But I'm also really conscious that um, there's, there's got to be a diversity here if we're going to meet a challenge of the dimension uh, of ensuring every child gets a quality education given the starting point we have now. Uh, so, yes, GPE is there with the levers about whole systems, but the direction of travel for change can often be best defined by innovation, agility, local leadership, small-scale philanthropy that can help uh, show an innovation direction that until it is, you know, tested and stood up for a small range of schools uh, can't actually be thought about as a system-wide change. Uh, and so I think it's this kind of... Um, you know, contestability of ideas that we see in our own nations, that you see here in the US, uh, that we see in Australia, where often uh, the people who are at the absolute cutting edge are the people in, um, you know, uh, innovative uh, private philanthropy, civil society uh, style arrangements, and then the whole system can learn from them and to work out how to take that change to scale. I have a feeling, so, so when because this is a group maybe not as familiar with what the Global Partnership for Education does exactly. So when you say that the three planks are, I think you said quality learning, equity, and redesigning school systems, to, um, like how does that play itself out? And I think about what you just said about the importance of kind of diverse local actors, you know, innovating and such. Um, like how does that all come together? I mean, how do you see GPE kind of moving forward in a way that will help catalyze us all to this quality learning goal? Sure. Uh, we, our predominant uh, model at the moment uh, is. Uh, working with countries on planning. Uh, so for all of our developing country partners, we work on the planning. Uh, we have an inclusive model, so countries uh, must have what we call a local education group. It doesn't have to be purpose uh, generated for GPE. It might be a pre-existing group that's in that national system. But it needs to be a group that brings together teachers, civil society, private philanthropy, uh, other donors who are in, in the country, in the field, uh, in an inclusive process to do an education sector plan. And then uh, in the lowest income countries, GPE makes available grants to finance the implementation of a section of the plan. And we have uh, review processes to make sure that the plan is being implemented uh, and that if there are difficulties in implementation, then once again they come back to this uh, inclusive process that has uh, more voices than just the government voice involved, as pivotal as the government's uh, voice is. And, you know, we're talking about uh, governments taking on the responsibility for educating every child in their national borders. Uh, so that's the way we work at the moment. 
Uh, we are undergoing a uh, process of uh, what we call a strategic financing and funding process to think about some innovations in the way in which we take in funds, but also some innovations in the way in which we give funds out uh, to try and uh, catalyse further change. And some of the key areas for that uh, include things like girls' education all the way through to secondary school, uh, early childhood development. Um, our grant, uh, major grant modality, does have a results-based financing component. So 30% of the money can be at risk against agreed benchmarks. Uh, and part of those agreed benchmarks are about the quality of the learning. And we do adapt the model uh, in very fragile countries and conflict-affected places. And almost half of where GPE works now is in countries that are fragile or have conflict or both. And I know an important part of your work is right now with this Education Financing Commission, which is producing a set of recommendations, again, about the kinds of investments we need to be making if we're going to actually meet this quality learning SDG. And I'm curious if there's anything you can share about kind of the areas of focus that are emerging from the Commission's work. Yeah, sure. The um, uh, document is kind of confidential to the Commission until it's, uh, you know, let, uh, let free, let to run in the wild, uh, and it will be uh, launched in mid-September uh, here in New York, associated with uh, the General Assembly of the United Nations. Uh, but to give, give you some broad uh, flavours about what the Commission's been working on, um, part of what I think has brought new global momentum into the education conversation is the increasing recognition that it's not just sustainable development goal four that depends on education, that really so much of the 17 global goals can't be achieved unless we get this schooling piece right, the education piece. Um, the health community is now crystal clear um, that you know we won't end the AIDS epidemic unless we are holding uh, adolescent girls in secondary school. Uh, the climate change community, I think, is increasingly uh, working through the evidence about uh, education and what it means for climate change adaptation, uh, what it also means for fertility rates and for how many people are going to be on this planet we share, uh, because the evidence is also very clear that educated women uh, choose to have fewer children and get to make more choices about their own lives, including at what age they marry, instead of marrying as a very young girl, as a child. And I think the national security community is now increasingly engaged uh, through the prism of counter-radicalisation and also the prism of people movement. Uh, so one thing that the Education Commission report will do is, I think, put the case for investment in education uh, in new ways and actually push these frontiers about how much education is a bedrock uh, for achievements in other areas that the global community wants to uh, see big achievements in. Uh, I think, too, it will take a pretty innovative look um, at the workforce issues. Um, there's been a, a lot of working through, um, and some of this data is already out there, at individual country levels. And so you say, how many people are in the teaching workforce now? 
how many children are there, how many people, you know, how many children are expected in the future, the demographic information, how many people are in university education in those countries. And when you do all of those maths, uh, you find out that even if everybody at university went to be a teacher, it wouldn't be enough. Uh, to staff the schools uh, for the demographic uh, group that's coming through, uh, given quite high birth rates in a number of these countries. And then, of course, everybody in university today is not going to go and be a teacher. Uh, they're going to go and be uh, doctors and lawyers and engineers and other things that are vitally needed. Uh, so how do you bridge that huge workforce shortage uh, whilst ensuring that there's quality? And there does need to be some very big innovative approaches to that. That's really striking. So more funding in which is, seems very exciting and and I mean that's I, I don't know if everyone got that but it's really striking to hear that like if everyone in university today went into teaching and education it wouldn't be enough. So are there big ideas that that are emerging along those lines? Well, I think uh, one of the things that the Commission's been trying to get a sense of is uh, the diversification in the teaching workforce uh, and what we can therefore do to, to grow supply. I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, today I've got all the answers. Obviously, the Commission is still working. But I think uh, part of uh, the, the knowledge bank uh, that uh, you all bring to the table through uh, the, the work that you do in countries and the global perspective that that work has given you uh, is about, you know, what it can, uh, what innovation and diversity we can see uh, in creating teacher workforce and in creating local leaders, and that's very important for this conceptualisation about the workforce of the future. I was going to ask you if you if you have advice for us, I mean, as you well know, our kind of theory of change is that, you know, all these organizations around the world are working to inspire a bunch of folks who might not have thought about channeling their energy towards education to commit initially two years, but then, you know, we're working to translate those initial two-year commitments to teach in high-need communities into lifelong commitments to lead and advocate for change. And as we think about our work um, and growing into new countries and, and, and supporting our partners around the world to scale up and, and improve their efforts, I wonder as you think about all these global discussions, kind of if you see implications for us and, and if you have advice for, for what more we can be doing to actually help the global community meet the, the SDGs. I um, always hesitate to give advice because you're more expert in what you do than I'll ever be. Uh, but I do think that there is, um, you know, a, a growing, um, you know, sense of global space here um, and a real hunger for ideas. And so I think um, through the experiences that you've had, uh, you will be able to help meet some of those ideas. And I think, um, and partly this is with my Brookings hat on, um, Brookings uh, did a, a great study uh, called Millions Learning. Uh, so it's a study of scalability of what takes you from a successful pilot into something that impacts children at scale um, and how often that journey 
doesn't get made successfully and what are the limitations in taking things to scale. Uh, and I think you've got a lot of experience in uh, what it takes to, um, you know, learn locally uh, but then share that learning and with, you know, diversification because it can never be a kind of cookie cutter thing but with diversification take the essence of the model to scale and I think the global community is very hungry for that. Uh, so your perspectives about workforce, about local leadership, about scalability, about innovation uh, I think are really central to the conversation now. And one of the things that's certainly happening in the global dialogue at the Education Commission and elsewhere is uh, people are benchmarking the education community against health. And, you know, you can only do that so far before it doesn't work. But there are, are some things we can learn. And out of the things we can learn, there's certainly been far greater investment uh, in knowledge products in health and far more effective sharing of what works. And if as a global education community, we can, uh, you know, try and uh, pick up some of the force of that uh, and be investing globally and locally uh, in what works and then sharing it and scaling it, it'll make a tremendous difference. Um, we just got a question from one of our virtual viewers um, asking about how GPE thinks about measuring the quality and equity of education systems. And in particular, you know, just as there's growing recognition that a focus on a limited set of academic outcomes isn't sufficient to truly put our kids on a path to meaningfully different outcomes, how do you think about, and, and where's the broader kind of global discussion around you know, measuring broader outcomes. We've um, uh, recently adopted, uh, as part of the strategic planning process, a results framework, a comprehensive results framework. There are uh, more than 40 indicators, so a very comprehensive results framework. So we've had to uh, bear down on this question about uh, how do you measure uh, quality and how do you measure inclusion. Uh, and how do you uh, resource our data collection? Because uh, it's one thing to think about what would the perfect metric be. Uh, it's another thing for that to have any meaning uh, in, in contexts where information isn't being gathered or systematically gathered. Uh, and so uh, we have worked through a number of those issues uh, and part of what countries have to do with this results-based financing bit of our grants is to have a data strategy. Uh, so we know where the kids are, whether they're being included at school, um, the gender um, uh, disaggregation of data is clear, the data about children with disability is gathered, things that aren't done now. On learning, uh, we are in part acting now and in part contributing to uh, the global discussion about what the learning measures should be for the sustainable development goal. Um, it seems to me inevitably in the first instance we're going to have to focus on literacy and numeracy because at least uh, we do have uh, mechanisms and, uh, you know, shared understandings about how literacy and numeracy can be measured. But I don't think it's enough to stop there. Uh, and part of a process that Brookings was involved in with UNESCO, the Learning Metrics Task Force, uh, has been to try and uh, design some ways that we
we can, you know, better measure the breadth of learning, the citizenship skills, the life skills, uh, as well as the literacy and numeracy. Uh, but for many of the countries in which we work, even robust measurement of literacy and numeracy outcomes is a fair, you know, distance of travel from where countries are now. Um, one of the things that has really struck me, no doubt because, you know, we're working here in, in a global organization is just how, and, and, you know, I think about it coming from the U.S. context where there are a, probably limited in the scheme of things, but investments that have fueled a kind of national ecosystem of organizations that are, you know, working to build capacity in local communities to actually change things for kids and then helping folks across these local communities learn from each other. I mean, probably if you look at the amount of philanthropy put into fueling the national ecosystem here in the U.S., it's a tiny, tiny fraction of the whole. Most philanthropy goes straight to local communities. And that's true also of the government funding. Like most government funding is going to help the most underserved communities, but maybe one or two percent of it is fueling a set of national organizations that are all about building local capacity and fostering innovation and ensuring learning across communities. So it's it's been kind of striking to have a different hat on, not of a national organization, but of a global organization and be out there seeking resources for that global organization because I've realized no one's fueling a global or, or you know a global ecosystem. There are so few philanthropic sources and so few governmental sources that are actually funding global organizations that could foster local innovation and learning across across communities or, or countries in this case. Um, and I wonder how you think about that. I mean, it's so striking to listen to you talk about the immense challenges we face in actually, you know, even having enough people in, in classrooms teaching, let alone reaching a quality learning, very ambitious set of outcomes by 2030. We're gonna need so much more capacity than we have today and so much more innovation. And I wonder if there's a discussion going on around you know, whether it could make sense to spend a little bit of, of that global funding on fueling an ecosystem of organizations that could help foster the kind of capacity and innovation and learning that we need. I, I think uh, that the discussions I've been in haven't quite put it directly like that, um, but there are some uh, threads coming together which take you uh, to, uh, the, to, to the sort of outlook that you're talking about. And, and those threads, I think, are um, the Education Commission um, in its work, and this is also true of the perspective we take at GPE, um, is not only focused on what more resources do we need to meet the challenge and to reach uh, SDG 4, but uh, also focused on the efficiency of the spend of current resources. Um, and in this world where it's not easy uh, to replenish global organisations, where there's a fair um, amount of anti-internationalism in uh, national politics, uh, Brexit in the UK, uh, some of the things that are being said during the course of the US election, but don't get me started. Um, uh, you know, it's not an easy world in which to uh, raise a lot of money. Um, you know, Europe under pressure with refugee flows and the like. 
Uh, and so we, I think, have accepted uh, the, the burden that we're only uh, persuasive about more resources if we can talk to the efficiency of the spend of current resources. And if you do look at the efficiency of the spend, uh, then it does lead you to best practice, where is it, how do we get better, who's doing it better, where are the innovations, how can we share them, how can we scale them. So that sort of then leans in uh, to uh, the, the needs that you're talking about. Uh, the other thing that, that I think has a through line is this uh, discussion about knowledge work and that we haven't been good in the education community uh, in investing in the generation of new knowledge. Uh, and by that, I don't mean you know, um, it, some of it might well be, you know, absolutely academic-driven research in uh, major uh, universities and uh, education institutions, but a lot of the knowledge work that's necessary uh, is uh, the, you know, conceptualisation of something that would be a change, uh, then piloting it, trialling it, evaluating it, working out what the next iteration is, making it more sophisticated, uh, and then uh, being able to find the mechanisms to take it to scale. And that leans into uh, the, the perspective you're taking too. So I think this is a pretty good environment for advocacy about the need for some resources, you know, not obviously most resources are always going to be mobilised for the direct task of teaching children, but for some resources uh, to be flowing uh, through um, global organisations and local organisations in a way that helps us increase knowledge and increase efficiency. Um, I think there are a few questions here as well, so feel free to, Amy. To, to give you just an absolute real-world example of this, um, I mean, clearly a lot of the dialogue about refugees has been about inflows into Europe, and I, I can understand why um, that has been so much in the global reporting. Uh, but actually, uh, two out of three refugees uh, in the world are in GPE countries, in the 65 developing countries where we work. Uh, and so, you know, a country like Chad uh, that has got huge challenges um, in developing its own education uh, system for the children of Chad, uh, is seeing uh, refugee inflows, displaced people, and it has taken the perspective that the responsibility of the government of Chad is to the education of every child in its nation's borders, which when you have so little and the challenge is so profound um, is something, you know, motivated by a generosity of spirit we often don't see. I mean, many countries uh, don't accept uh, that it's their responsibility to educate refugee children. Someone else should be doing that. Um, you know, Chad asked us to make some of its grant money available early to help them meet this challenge, and we did do that. Uh, but in our model, uh, we don't have a dedicated source of funds for things like that. And so it came out of the later grant that they would have been entitled to anyway. 
Uh, so we've got to do better than that. Uh, and part of the um, impulse to create Education Cannot Wait, a dedicated fund for children in crisis and conflict, uh, is so that we don't face that, you know, dreadful choice between it's only, you know, one grant and so if it's spent early then it can't be spent later. But there's actually some new funds that can be brought to bear. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're hoping uh, that we can keep innovating our model, but we can keep innovating our model in circumstances where there are more funds available to assist uh, countries that are in crisis themselves or uh, are, are dealing with the outflows of crisis elsewhere. Here's a question from Melody Potts Rosevere, the founder and CEO of Teach for Australia, who's somehow watching us. Um, she says, firstly, thank you for your pioneering support of Teach for Australia, which is going strong, doubled in size this year. And I hear great things about what their alumni are already starting to do, et cetera. Um, she asks, given GPE's focus on systems and lots of contextual differences within and between countries, curious to hear what does GPE see as the top three universal levers that any system should pull to increase equity? That's, um, uh, she's a very smart woman and consequently that's a very smart question. Uh, I should expect that from Melody. Um, uh, I mean, I should say our, our model is a, you know, a country-led uh, development model. So there's nothing about this uh, systems work, uh, which means that, you know, we come in with a model system and say, you know, here you go, uh, this is exactly the right model for, you know, um, uh, Chad or... Um, Papua New Guinea or uh, Vietnam, uh, you know, it's got to be uh, a model that is generated in country and meets that country's needs. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't learn from elsewhere uh, and uh, make sure that the best of information is there to help with the planning of what is the relevant local model. Uh, the big issues, um, I think, uh, that we no comes up as people plan local models. Um, on inclusion, we are really just at the start of the journey for children with disabilities. A lot of that has been conceptualised as um, changing school infrastructure so that it is physically accessible. And yes, that has to happen, uh, but it's really just the start of catering for children with a wide range of learning disabilities. Uh, and and many, uh, many of these children uh, would, uh, you know, be, be assisted uh, by things that are uh, available in our countries. I mean, eyeglasses, hearing aids, uh, hearing implants, uh, things that would enable them to uh, then engage in learning, which aren't available in their country. So uh, I think there's a big set of issues around disability that we're working through and thinking through with our developing country partners a big set of issues uh, around girls' education and particularly as we lift aspiration to have adolescent girls in school to go beyond primary school. Uh, that is where you get into the far more contested space uh, about girls' roles and girls' lives 
opportunities uh, and so that takes you to a bundle of issues about uh, teaching workforce, uh, female teachers, uh, whether or not the journey to school is safe, whether or not the school is safe, whether there's gender-based violence at the school, how do you incentivise poor families to send their girls to school, good evidence around school feeding programs, good evidence around uh, modest cash transfer programs but getting that mix right. Uh, and then uh, the the quality of learning, um, you know, at, obviously in, in and of itself, but it's also an inclusion issue uh, in the sense that if you've got uh, highly, un, you know, not a rigorous approach to quality, then we know from our own nations uh, that it will be the most disadvantaged children who will tend to get the lowest quality education. Uh, and so that holds true uh, in many of the countries that we're... Uh, but thinking, uh, thinking about and working with, uh, so that rigorous approach to quality in every school for every child um, and the issues around that. So they'd be the three. I'm hearing, is Jen Brenneman in the audience? I'm hearing she has a question. Way in the back, I'll repeat it. Okay, let me repeat. So of the $4 billion that GPE is given, um, you know, what's the 1% that's most exciting to you personally? Like if you could just have 1% to do anything at all with, like what would you personally do? Uh, our governance structures are too rigorous to allow me to wander around with 1% of the money, uh, so uh, that that doesn't happen. It's probably too bad. <laughs> oh, no, I think those uh, rigorous governance structures are good. Um, I, um, I with, with the 1%, uh, I would uh, want to, uh, and it's something that I've been raising at the Education Commission, um, you know, overwhelmingly... Uh, overwhelmingly, the costs of running schools is in the salaries, it's in the teachers. Um, but with a modest 1%, uh, I do think that there are some things we could do to innovate for the other inputs to education that would reduce price points. So to take a leaf out of the um, global health book, you know, what has enabled um, AIDS medication to be available in developing countries? Uh, well, it's uh, aggregated demand drives down price, you know. Um, also true of vaccines. If you're going to vaccinate one child, hideously expensive. If you put to a manufacturer of vaccines, we'll uh, buy for, uh, you know, 10 million, 20 million, 30 million children, you get a better price. Um, I think that there are some things we could do to aggregate demand for commonly used educational inputs, uh, books, uh, technology, some of these disability aids, spectacles, um, hearing aids, uh, which might enable us to reach more children because we've driven down price. Uh, now, there's a limit to how far you can go with that because, you know, even books, and the US is doing a lot of work on this through the Books Alliance, um, you know, it's, uh, you've got different cultures, different languages, and so it's not quite the same like aggregating demand for vaccines. Um, but uh, there, there is enough, I think, to make this uh, worthy of real investigation. And if we can shave some costs there, then it liberates more for the rest of the, uh, you know, task, which is about teaching and teaching with quality. 
on a similar vein of just thinking about, you know, your where you personally are kind of coming at all this. I'm curious because you spent a long time focused on education in Australia and I'm kind of curious what you feel like you learned from that that's kind of informed your thinking and approach about what we really need to do to move things forward globally. Yeah, uh, I think uh, from from uh, that, I mean, one of the things I've certainly taken with me is I, um, I am a data nerd uh, and I don't mind uh, being uh, outed as a data nerd. I think it is incredibly uh, uh, important if we're going to improve education, uh, school by school, child by child, that we have the information. Uh, and, of course, we've talked about um, the, uh, you know, question of how you measure learning quality. Uh, but actually, there's a whole other set of information we need, uh, which goes to the equity of the system and the financing of the system, uh, which is in many countries, uh, actually money tends to flow to patterns of advantage, not patterns of disadvantage. Uh, so more resources are put into the education of the children with the uh, you know, greatest um, social capital when they come to school and the least in, into the children with the greatest disadvantage. Uh, I think uh, that um, data uh, in developing countries uh, needs to be uh, you know, collected and considered. Um, and it, you know, goes to um, the, the, the very fact that whilst what GPE does is very important, uh, international uh, aid flows are very important, actually uh, the biggest uh, money mobilisation for education in developing countries is by developing countries themselves. Uh, and so that domestic resource mobilisation then does need to be uh, tracked and traced and equitably spent. Uh, so I think, um, you know, I've taken that with me uh, and I've taken with me too uh, the, the, you know, wanting for the best possible data uh, on equity issues, on student populations and in uh, many of the countries in which we work, uh, that data isn't available. Uh, so in my sort of uh, Brookings capacity, uh, I am working with Rwanda to try and um, pilot some new approaches to data collection on uh, student populations, uh, financing, as well as learning. And if you can put that combination of data together, then it can be very powerful. You can see who's learning, uh, who's overcoming uh, disadvantages that they brought to school, what the value add of the school is, uh, and then you can also work out whether the constraint on the value add uh, is a financing constraint because the school's not getting enough resources. Um, Another question that just came up on Twitter is how does the GPE ensure cultural survival and continued informal and indigenous education and knowledge? Which I think too just speaks to the broader question of how do we ensure as we think about this globally that we're informed by community voices and and just the communities and the, and the kind of context in which we're, work, we're working. I mean, how do you think about that? Uh, well, for, for us, because this is a uh, country-led development model uh, and, you know, the per perspectives of countries will uh, be different, uh, it is really about working with the country to, um, you know, have an education system and a model that meets 
its cultural needs, its language needs and the diversity of its population. Uh, so it's not something that we would fashion in GPE in Washington, uh, but something that we would work with countries on. Uh, and, you know, the generation of learning materials in local languages, for example, uh, these can be, you know, very difficult and very resource intensive questions, uh, but ones that do need to be worked through in a properly planned system. We have another Australian in the audience with a question. Um, we, we do think about this. It's more developed uh, on the healthcare side than any other side. Uh, we are in a very um, good dialogue with the Global Fund um, about uh, working together on some of the, the things that we know uh, education matters for and in healthcare and healthcare matters for in education. Um, you know, this uh, HIV AIDS question is obviously a big one, keeping girls in school is a protective factor. Uh, but then there are a whole lot of, um, you know, areas where health investments will make a difference to learning. Um, nutrition, deworming, uh, you know, very practical uh, engagements and interventions, which if they're thought through and planned collaboratively, uh, we can make a real difference. I mean, one, one thing about schools uh, is, you know, you know they're going to be places where children are. Uh, and so if you are trying to roll out a universal deworming program, then it obviously makes some sense to be thinking about schools as the delivery place for that health intervention, uh, rather than trying to advocate that every child gets taken to a clinic, which is going to be a more res resource intensive task. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, practical planning with health. Um, I can't say that we are at the stage of practical planning uh, with the national security community, uh, but the uh, government of Norway uh, as well as being the uh, lead government for the education commission work. Uh, the government of Norway is uh, showing some leadership on these questions and particularly the issue of safe schools uh, and what it means as a nation to think about uh, whether or not when you mobilise your military uh, you use schools as a place for that mobilisation. Um, you can understand why military planners would think, well, that's a convenient choice because, you know, schools are public facilities, they've got power, they may have water, all of those kinds of things. They may have power and water. Uh, but once you do use them for that sort of military mobilisation, they become targets uh, if there's internal conflict. Um, so uh, there's a safe school uh, declaration uh, that the government of Norway is asking countries to think through and to sign on to. So uh, there are some very interesting kind of dialogues back and forth at the moment. I think it's such a good question that, that really emerges from our work too because I think what we just consistently find is that when your ultimate goal is kids really having the chance to fulfill their potential, you know, we can't do it from within schools alone, and it makes such a difference when you have folks who are rooted in that purpose working from other sectors like health or, you know, 
and any number of other sectors, the economy, et cetera. So um, thus the origin probably of, of that question. Um, well, I just want to thank you. Are there any other questions in, in the audience? I know we need to, yes. Can you sort of capture the question? Yes, uh, to, uh, the, the question uh, was uh, arising from some of the discussions that have been held even this week about the sustainable development agenda and how um, we can measure progress, the data that that requires and the capacity for people to interpret the data and that a lot of people emerge even from university education without that capacity. Um, as a, a former student of statistics, um, you know, I've got to suppress the urge to say statistics should be compulsory for everyone. Um, I doubt, doubt that would be a popular uh, political mantra, would it, wandering around universities saying uh, everybody's got to study statistics. Um, but uh, I, do, uh, I, I do actually think uh, one one of the curriculum challenges, so this is me speaking, not GPE, but one of the curriculum challenges of our century uh, as we move our curriculum models from being about um, fact acquisition uh, to uh, being able to live and work in the age in which we live where getting the facts is not the issue, you can always do that, um, it's interpreting them that's the hard part. Uh, I actually think we will have to move some of our curriculum models to help people have the skills uh, to better analyse um, the, the data that is available to us, including the sort of statistical material that we've now got the capacity to capture. Uh, so that's a longer and deeper conversation about uh, curriculum, but I think over time it's one the education community, um, you know, not necessarily through this prism of education for development, but education globally uh, in all countries will need to have. Julia, thank you so much for making the time to help bring our community kind of into this broader discussion and for your leadership. I don't know if people fully have their heads around the degree to which your personal leadership is so crucial to this incredibly, no doubt exhausting, but exhilarating and incredibly important effort to ensure that all of our kids all around the world are attaining a, a good education. So thank you so much for all you're doing. For more information about Teach For All, visit teachforall.org.